The Lord is great, and he is greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. Of course, there is only one true God, and that is our Heavenly Father, his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit who comes and works in our lives. So let's go to him now in prayer. Lord, we know that all the idols and all the gods of the people of this world are useless, for they are not you. You have told us not to shape any image that would uh, be representative of you, but to trust only in you, for you are spirit, for no man has seen God. We think of your mercies and grace, for which we do see. We see them demonstrated in the lives of believers. We see them demonstrated through the work of those who strive to proclaim the things of Christ and further the things of the kingdom. Lord, fix our minds and hearts upon these things, that we might see you at work in this world, that we might not only just see you at work in our lives, but we might take that the power of the Spirit that rests within us and, and use it and put it to work. That the words that we say, the actions that we do, might point to Christ. That when people look at our lives, they would see you. When they hear our words, they would hear your words, whether it is at the office or whether it's cutting the grass and and talking across the fence to our neighbors, whether it's to the waiter or waitress at the restaurant, wherever it may be, Lord, that we might speak and demonstrate the mercies that you have provided for us that we might live out the joy that is placed in our hearts, the joy that comes from you, that the peace of Christ may work within us and and, and be communicated to all who come in contact with us, Lord, that they might see by our actions that we are different because of the love you have placed within us. Come, Heavenly Father, descend upon us with your spirit that we may walk and know and live these things. Lord, we come not because we are worthy. We come to the throne of grace because you have made the way through the work of Christ and you have drawn us unto yourself and you have called us to come and to put all our cares, all our joys, all that we are before you and entrust them into your hands. For you have numbered our days. You know all that we are. There is nothing that is hidden from you. You know our weaknesses, you know our shortcomings, you know the terribleness of the things that dwell in our hearts that we tell no one else, but you are aware of them. But yet you say, come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden. Come to me with all that you are. Come to me and you will know forgiveness. Come to me and you will know the peace that you so desperately seek. So Lord, today we bring all that we are before you and lay it down at the throne of grace that we might know your peace and the joy of Christ. Lord, for we come 
not on our own work, but on his. So we pray together the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Rejoice in what the Lord has given to us. So we take this opportunity now, invite the ushers to come forward, that we might return some of that portion for the work of the Lord. Father, strength and beauty are in your sanctuary. Those are the things that we see in your word. Those are the things that we hear as we come before you. Lord, we pray that they may be manifest in our lives, that our minds would be focused on the things of beauty and what is right and just in your eyes and by your definition. Lord, that the things of strength may be made real in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that others might see it, that we would communicate it, that the gospel would go to them and penetrate their hearts, Lord, that the things of Christ would be clearly and plainly proclaimed. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated.
Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 25. Really, this is a two-part sermon today and next week. This is a uh, kind of a setup for what is to come next week. And really, chapters 25 and chapters 26 uh, all go together as a unit um, because they, they basically are on the same theme and show us the, the same thing. And as we'll see, it's nothing that we haven't seen before, but there are a couple new things that are added for us if we're willing to dig into his word. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I will read Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. Heavenly Father, come upon us this morning, that the things of Christ would be made real to us as we dig into your word, that the Holy Spirit would come. And through his enlightenment, we might understand how we are to live because of what we see in your word today. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priest and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea, and on the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered... Paul to be brought. And after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If I then am, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You have appealed to Caesar. And to Caesar you shall go. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now we have seen from chapter 21 through, here we are in chapter 25, and it continues really through chapter 28 and the end of the books of of Acts, this repeated example that, that Paul is a prisoner. And during this time of imprisonment, he's been imprisoned in several different ways in different places, He gives his defense, and it's a time of repeated defenses before those who accuse him. Most of the time they're accusing him falsely, attempting to stir the pot. I mean, they just want to get rid of Paul. 
Now you understand that it's been two years that he's been cooling his heels in, uh, in, in a loosely guarded prison, so to speak. Uh, first with Felix, and Felix was hoping to, you know, get a little money out of Paul, so he kept him there kind of in loosely, uh, loose incarceration. And, and uh, uh, yeah, Felix was, was not a really good leader, so Rome called him back and Festus shows up. Okay, and we see this repeated again and again, this time where Paul is in prison and he's giving a defense of what he believes and the defense of Jesus Christ. Now, in these chapters, there's no great salvation story. There's no great work of church planting going on. Uh, There's no great miracles. There's actually only one mention of the gospel, and that's later in chapter 25. But for the most part, these chapters are simply historic narrative about this is what happens to Paul and this is what he does. And it sounds like it's almost a broken record. He does the same thing again and again. Now, it's to, to equate it with something else in Scripture, there are those chapters which are purely genealogies. We see it in Chronicles, we see it in Matthew, uh, and see it in Luke, and and. and at first glance, they really don't show us much. Well, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. And usually, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, you may be tempted to jump those pages. Or if you go to the pages dealing with sacrifices and how you're to set up the sacrifice and how they're to be carried out and all those things, and you go, oh, this, what does this say to me today? Well, if you're willing to spend the time and dig in, then you can find out what it, why it is there. Because Scripture has an an economy of words. It does not use words that are not needed. And the words which it does use are very needed. Whether they be individual words and how they are structured and placed, or whether they be narratives such as the chronology, such as the illustration of the sacrifices, or here... Paul's repeated trials and defenses, which sound like the same thing again and again, yet we can see some very interesting things that he teaches us here. Now, Paul has already had three defenses, and you'd think that we would get the idea about what is going on here uh, prior to chapter 25, uh, but that's not the case. And if, because, and if it's not enough here in chapter 25, then in chapter 26, we get another one before Agrippa. And then he goes off to Rome. I mean, all of these things here are important for us to understand. Because, especially here, there are some underlying truths which these defenses of Paul demonstrate to us. The underlying truths of what happens to believers and how God works in our lives. Now, I'm going to give you eight, and in your notes you can see that there are eight blanks there. And we're not going to cover them except to give them to you as a list. And we'll, we'll, we'll run through them. But these are kind of the underlying truths that these defenses show for us. And I've gathered these from a variety of sources um, so the first one, the first truth is the power of an innocent and blameless Christian testimony. Who can bring a charge against you if you are innocent and blameless and you stand in the righteousness of Christ? And that's the first thing that we learn, the power of an innocent and blameless Christian testimony. We see it again and again in Paul's actions. Second, we see that there is a hatred of Christianity by religious people, by religious people. Because the religions of the world are not run by God. They are empowered by that other guy. 
Okay, they are created by that other guy whom the Lord created and gave a certain amount of authority and power to operate in this world. They are false religions, so therefore they are naturally going to fight against Christianity. Christianity is true. It is right. All false religions are going to fight against Christianity. Third, we see that there is a power of sin to bind our hearts. A power of sin to bind our hearts. If you've ever been caught up in it in yourself or know somebody who has, once it gets hold of you, it is very difficult to get rid of it because it becomes part of your life. It clings to you like a friend. It clings to you like a uh, like a tick that you get under your skin and you can't get rid of it. That sin wants to call your name again and again and again. That's what Paul talks about, you know, the dangers of becoming a slave to sin. Fourth, we see how the spirit-filled Christians create a problem for the world. That those believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, those believers whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ, and now the Spirit indwells within them, they create a problem for the world. Okay? The world can't stand holy lives. It makes them uncomfortable. Okay? It makes them uncomfortable. And again, it's like the, the false religions, they will hate Christianity. If you are living a godly life, you will make ungodly people very uncomfortable. Fifth, simply we see it in Paul's continued and repeated demonstration, the courage of the believer. Before the accusations which are false, Paul never shrinks. He says this is the truth and he says it again and again and again. Sixth, Christianity, now not, there's a distinction here because we understand that we are sinful and we understand that the problems within the church are created by whom? By us, okay? Uh, you know, I got, uh, now, now Satan may have a little help in that, but really we're the ones that create the problems. I got my own selfish issues, I've got the, my own things that I like, and and, um, uh, you know, I, I can get uh, obsessed and focus on things that are really not important. So the problems within the church are our problems. But the church of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ really cannot be accused of any unrighteousness, cannot be accused of any sinfulness, cannot be accused of an attempt to uh, change the world through through sneaky means, okay? And that was one of the things that Paul was often accused of, political activism, okay? These Christians really are here to change society, and they want to overthrow the Roman government. In reality, Christianity never did that. I mean, some of us uh, throughout history have, have corrupted it in that way. But the church is not about that, and we'll see that in a few moments. The church is innocent of any political activity, especially here in Paul's defense of Jesus Christ. Seventh, we see the power of a life that is totally committed to Christ. So I mean, Paul, Paul just pitched out everything else in his life. It wasn't a priority. The things of Christ were a priority. He says, I want to know who? Christ and him crucified. That's all I want to know. That's all I want to preach to you. And eighth, we see throughout these defenses God's hand of providence in the way that he guides Paul and moves him and places him in places and in situations where he will be able to proclaim the things of Christ to the very highest levels in the world today, to the very highest levels even into Rome. So here we are, and Paul comes before Festus, okay? That was my eight, those eight 
underlying principles. Festus, verse 1 of chapter 25. Festus is new on the scene. Okay, he's new on the scene. Historians don't give us much information about him other than he was a good administrator. Felix was a bad administrator. Festus is a good guy. Um, he's arrived in a situation that is really in the midst of civil unrest. Okay, now he's, he's a good administrator. He's not, uh, he's not a believer, uh, but he's not uh, as evil as the next two guys who come. Uh, the next two guys who come after him are um, Albinus and Florus, and they just, everything just goes right down the tubes in Judea after that, ending in the, the uh, revolt of 70 AD. Jerusalem is, the temple is destroyed. Titus comes in and just makes, uh, just makes Jerusalem a killing field. Uh, because of their disobedience to Rome. Well, he arrives there. Let's look at verse 1. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the providence, three days later went up to Jerusalem. Three days he's on his way to Jerusalem because it seems that Paul is high on the docket. Okay, I don't know how you spend your day, whether you make a list when you first get to, the, uh, to work and these are the things you have to achieve, or you get up in the morning, you're a list person, these are the priorities. Paul was up there in the priorities for this guy. He had to deal with the Paul problem, so to speak. And as I said, Felix kept him around for two years, hoping to extort a little money. Remember, Paul showed up with all this money for Jerusalem, and he says, well, Paul's got some rich friends, apparently, maybe I can benefit from this. So Paul has been cooling his heels, although he's had this uh, leeway there while he was incarcerated. Along comes Festus and says, we're going to have action. Three days he has action. Okay? So he calls together the chief priest, and Festus is urged by the Jewish court to release Paul to their jurisdiction. Okay? Now understand, they are still, it's been two years, and, and the fact that Paul is alive it still eats at them. Okay, remember when he declared that he takes the gospel to the Gentiles, they said he's got no business even being alive. Paul should no longer be allowed to live. Well, it's been two years since then, and that is still on the tip of their tongue. We've got to kill Paul. So maybe this new guy will let us have him. What did they want? Verse 3. They requested a concession. Uh, A concession. We might call that a favor. Okay, they requested a favor in the fact that they wanted Paul, this looks requested that Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem. Okay? That doesn't seem out of the ordinary, does it? Send him down to Jerusalem so that we can have a talk with him and try him in our way. But we see the rest in, that, in the little parentheses section of verse 3. At the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. They just want Paul dead. Okay? They want Paul dead. Now, why did they hate him so much? Wasn't he one of them at one time? Remember when he gave his defense before the Jewish uh, people and he said, Brothers, I'm I'm the son of a Pharisee and a Pharisee himself. And all the Pharisees went, Yeah, that's right. And then he said, What? And I'm here because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all the Pharisees went, Yeah, that's right. And all the Sadducees went, Ah, we got to kill him. Now everybody hates him. Now everybody hates him and wants him dead. Why? Because he's no longer captive to the, the false religions of the world. He is no, his heart no longer belongs to the things of Satan. It belongs to Christ. They hated Christ. They hate Paul. Okay? They hated him because he was no longer part of their system of religion. They're part 
uh, no longer part of the system of the world that was ruled by Satan. John 15 says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. They don't hate you just because believers are better looking, believers are nicer, believers are richer. That that, that has no bearing. They hate believers because they hate Christ. That's it. And Christ lives within us. So Festus must have been tempted to handle the Paul problem pretty quickly. But we also know that Festus was no dummy. So he had probably read the notes that had been written about the trial and Paul's incarceration for the last two years. The letter from Commander Lysias who sent Paul up there in the first place to try to explain everything that was going on. So Festus invites the men, the Jewish leaders, to Caesarea. Well, come on up. We'll have a little trial up there. Okay, And that's what happens in verses 6 through 10. And then Paul drops the bomb on them in verse 11 that he's going to appeal to Caesar. Now we're going to look at that in just a moment. Now, well, we'll go there now. The appeal to Caesar really was, was his right. Everyone who was an Italian, that's, that would be our name today, Italian, had the right to appeal to Caesar in a court of law. Those who were not Italians but were Roman citizens could appeal if there was no precedence for the case. Okay? And because there was no precedence for this particular case, his appeal goes up to Caesar. Okay? You'll see at uh, verse 12, uh, the end of 11, I appealed to Caesar and Festus when he had conferred with his council to see basically if there was precedence for this case. says, there's no precedence, so off you go to Caesar and he will deal with you. Now, Caesar, in this case, is Nero at this time. Now, Nero's been on the throne maybe three or four years, and Nero doesn't have a very good reputation. Uh, But at this time, it's not that bad. Nero came to power under the um, influence of of the philosopher Seneca, so he was pretty well uh, schooled in the things of justice and what was right. But uh, something happened to Nero. I guess, you know, power corrupts, and he was the absolute emperor, and he just went off the, the deep end. And uh, his tolerance and his justice did not last, obviously. So when Festus grants Paul's appeal to go to Caesar, he was probably relieved to get rid of this guy and get him out of his hair. Now, about this time, we see that somebody else shows up, okay? And that is Agrippa, Agrippa II. Okay, and Agrippa II, with his sister Bernice, arrive to pay their respects to Festus. Now, you remember Felix and his wife Drusilla, and how she had been married, and he kind of stole her away, and they were quite the pair. Agrippa and his sister are quite the pair as well. Her name was Bernice, and and. These are just some of the characters that are listed in Scripture, so I need to give you some background. She was born in 28 A.D., daughter of uh, Agrippa I, and after a number of failed marriages, she went through two or three different marriages where the guy that died or she left him or, you know, she was enticed to go off to somebody else. About in the 40s, uh, she ends up in the court of her brother, Herod Agrippa II. Now, there were all kinds of rumors at this time that it was an incestuous relationship. Okay, and the rumors from what I read are pretty valid uh, that these two were quite 
close. Okay? Uh, but when his power began to wane, uh, she hooked up with Titus Vespius, who would be the one who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, later rise to the, uh, as Roman emperor. But of course, as his power is going up, he looks at her and says, uh, basically, I need a trophy wife, so you're gone, and gets a younger wife. Okay? So Bernice has her ups and downs. Well, Festus here goes, mm, maybe I could check with Agrippa and see what I should say when I send my letter to Caesar to talk about what Paul is doing. So he, con- he confers with them, and, and that, that comes in the, in the second part, as Paul will actually give a defense before Agrippa and his sister Bernice. But we have to understand some of the things that have been said previously about Paul. The Lord said Paul, of Paul, he's my chosen one, the instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And then in chapter 23, he says, you're going to Rome, Paul. There's no doubt about it, you're going to Rome. So this is all part of God's hand of providence to get Paul to Rome, that he may testify not only before the Gentiles, but as well as the kings of Israel. God was at work behind these potentially frustrating circumstances that Paul was in. Remember, Paul was a church planter. Okay? Church planters have a particular personality type. They have a particular mentality and way of looking at the world. And this is the way when people ask me, well, what do you mean, Rand? When I go and get my dry cleaning, I walk in, I give them my phone number, I get my dry cleaning, I give them some money, I say thanks, and I leave. A church planter will spend 10 minutes talking to somebody he has never met before in an effort to get to know them so that he might involve them in the things of Christ. That's the way a church planner acts. And the church planner does not like to sit and be idle. They want action. They want to, they want to, create, they want to go and, and overcome new territories and expand. And that's what Paul was doing except for these years when he is kind of stuck in the mud here. Now we think that Paul could be very frustrated in the sense that uh, why aren't we, we having more action? Why aren't we doing things, okay? No. Lord says, I've got this plan for you, Paul. I'm going to get you to Rome, but in the midst of that, I'm going to do something in your life, and it may cause you to sit and to wait, and as we'll see, I think it caused Paul to be humbled in this fashion. And sometimes the Lord humbles us so that he might work and shape us, that he might conform us more to the image of his son. So why is Paul making all these appearances before these tribunals? Okay, let me give you a couple reasons. Paul's written a letter to Rome, and in the 13th chapter of that epistle, he highlights very clearly the believer's responsibility to civil government. He said, civil government exists for the welfare of society, and the civil magistrate has been given the power of the sword, that is to mete out justice and lawful justice. And that's why he says here to Festus, if I've broken a law, then, then, you know, prove me guilty and I'll take the punishment. I mean, Paul is not bucking the system here. He's laying it out and says, no, no, I'm going to go through these steps and I'm going to go through these trials and I'm going to demonstrate my innocence in the midst of all of these things. Now, as far as Paul was concerned, Nero was in power because God put him there. Festus was in power because God put him there. And he put, him, put these guys there for his purposes so that the the will and the plan of God might be carried out and 
believers are to adhere to the power of the civil government except in two instances where the magistrate tells us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. Now, the civil magistrate today would be anywhere from police to um, representatives of the state, city government, all those things. We are to follow those things according to what we find in, in Scripture in all ways except in those two instances. When they asked us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. So when he gets to Rome, he'll write the pastoral epistles, and he'll tell Timothy and the, and the Christians in Ephesus to pray for the kings, pray for those who are in authority, whether you like them or not. Okay, I don't believe that Paul particularly liked Nero or the things that went on, nor did these believers in Ephesus, but he calls them to pray for them, that God may work in their life and that they may pursue justice. Now let's remember that Paul is on his way to Rome by command and providence of God. And what will happen in Rome? Well, perhaps Paul may see himself as a test case for all believers. Perhaps he wants to establish Christianity under the umbrella of the Roman law. Remember, Judaism is a recognized religion. Christianity is an offshoot and is not recognized. Okay, So maybe he is trying to get Christianity established as a uh, a religion so that the believers will not be persecuted any longer. Well, I think that his time of evangelism and church planning idleness in these years of, of these trials and defenses was, an was useful in his life and as an example for us in humility. To be humbled by the Lord is not always an enjoyable thing. I, I don't know. I, I would rather humble myself than have God come in and humble me. I'd rather be attentive to what I need to do before the Lord feels it necessary to come in and act in humbling me. But it's during those times of being humbled that we are prepared, that we are shaped, and that we are taught what we will need to know for what the Lord has for us to do. So if you're perhaps going through a period of humbling now, uh, and you're, you're grumbling about it. Say, Lord, why are you doing this to me? I'm not interested in any of this. Perhaps you should step back and look and say, okay, Lord, what are you preparing me for? What are you shaping me to do? What are you teaching me that I will need to know because you've got something for me to do in the future and I know you're not wasting this time in my life. You might find yourself in circumstances which are not all that conceptually difficult, different from Paul. Maybe you're not where you want to be in life. Maybe if you look back 20 years, you said, I never thought I'd be here. I had a whole different plan going in my life, and I don't know what the Lord is doing, but I don't particularly like it. Okay? Maybe your life resembles, has no resemblance to what you dreamed of. Maybe your spouse is not what you hoped that they would be. Maybe your chosen profession isn't even your profession now, and it's something that you're just doing because it pays the bills. Maybe your children are causing you stress, incredible stress that you never even thought was possible. Maybe there are circumstances beyond your control, okay? And maybe there seems to be no real direction in your life. The question is, what is God doing in the midst of these things? Is he humbling you so that he may prepare you, that he may shape you, that he may teach you? Here it is, the greatest church planner in all of history, and he likes action, and he is cooling his heels in prison and testifying before these leaders again and again. The Lord is using these times to prepare Paul 
So we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to take the yoke on of Christ no matter what it is, whether it's humbling or whether it's exaltation? And the Lord says, remember, if you exalt yourself, what will he do to us? He will humble us. If we humble ourselves, what will he do? He will exalt us. Let's pray. Lord, we see the work of Paul here, and, and, and whether it was frustrating to him or not, he, he doesn't lead on to tell us, but he understood that you were at work in his life. It is clear from what has been said that you had work for him to do, and to get him to that point, you had to work in his life and prepare him and shape him and teach him so that he was ready for it. Lord, what are you doing in our lives? Is there something going on in, in our hearts right now that we have to step back from and say, all right, I didn't look at it this way, Lord, but now I need to look at it in this fashion. What are you doing? Is this time of perhaps frustration in our lives? Is this a time perhaps of humbling? Is this a time when you are trying to teach us and we just aren't willing to listen? What's going on in our hearts, Lord? Help us to see that you are at work because we belong to you and you have a plan for each of us. And you are working that plan out and sometimes it takes us to be shaped and molded in a fashion that we don't, we don't expect, we may not like, we can't appreciate. Help us to rest in what you are doing knowing that you are preparing us for what you have for us to do. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And now go from this place, that your dwelling place may be with the Lord at all times, that your heart might be enlivened by him, might be full of his peace and his mercy, and that his face would shine upon you in all things as you pursue the plan he has laid before you, pursue his grace and his holiness to his praise and to his glory. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.